Hey, it's Malia. If you've listened to the podcast for a while, first of all, thank you. We really appreciate you. You've likely heard us refer to the Enneagram personality system. It helps us understand ourselves and the people in our lives so we can be more compassionate, connect, and communicate with them better. And I have seen this in my own family. You're bound to recognize yourself and your loved ones in the descriptions of each type and how they relate to the world. We are so excited to share this with you and look forward to hearing what resonates. In the episode description and show notes, you'll find timestamps noting where we cover each type. All right, here's the episode. Welcome to Semi Together, a podcast about having some of your life together all of the time. It's about working on where you want to get it together while giving yourself credit for where you've got it together. As we learn to live with more calm, joy, and authenticity, we share takeaways from our research and experience that you can use too. I'm Malia Dicker, and I'm in Jackson, Mississippi. And I'm her sister, Jillian Burgess, and I live in Barcelona, Spain. Today's topic is Get Out of Your Own Way by Knowing Your Enneagram Type. And we'll be talking to our dear friend, Alicia Ross, a certified Enneagram coach who is starting a new Enneagram training and coaching business this summer. And we thought this topic was timely after two plus years of COVID pandemic stress, which has brought out the worst in most of us at some point, mm-hmm. the way we act when we're overwhelmed and scared and spending a lot of time with our loved ones in close quarters tends to bring out old patterns of conflict. I know this very well. <laughs> From, experience. <laughs> From firsthand experience. First-hand experience, yes. The PTSD <laughs> of being stuck in the house with your whole family yes. for months. <laughs> yes. And as challenging as this period has been, it is also an opportunity to look at why we do the things we do, even when we know they don't serve us. The Enneagram personality system can help us understand these patterns, give us more compassion for ourselves and other people, and open up the space to make a different choice that would help us get out of that pattern. Alicia will introduce the nine Enneagram types in this context, sharing what causes stress for each type and how each type can find more balance, peace, sanity, and connection. And I know listeners that we've alluded to the Enneagram many a time and said, we're planning to do an episode about this. Mm -hmm. So now you will understand when we say that someone is an Enneagram seven or one or whatever, you'll know what that means. Yes. Now we'd like to welcome our guest today, Alicia Ross. Alicia has been studying the Enneagram personality system since she attended her first Enneagram retreat in 2008 with world-renowned Enneagram teachers, Father Richard Rohr. Ross Hudson and Suzanne Stabile. And she says she pretty much has been unable to stop talking about it ever since. (laughs) As a community organizer by training, she's found the Enneagram to be an invaluable tool for leadership development and managing a team, as well as for powerful personal and spiritual growth. Alicia is currently completing a year-long Enneagram certification program through the Shift Network led by Enneagram teachers Ross Hudson and Jessica Dibb. She has also completed an Enneagram coaching certification and has a master's in liberal arts and spirituality. Alicia is launching her Enneagram training and coaching business this summer and is excited to share this life-changing wisdom with others who want to experience greater well-being and a deeper capacity to bring their gifts to the world. And you can learn more about her upcoming offerings at her website, EnneagramGrowthPath.com. So welcome, Alicia. Welcome. Thank you so Yay. much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I know Yay. we are too. Yes. One thing that's not in her bio is that we are very old friends and we were some of the first people we met when we went to college. We were 18, walked onto the campus, moved in, long moving day. And then we had this pizza dinner out with the people who are moving in. 
And Alicia was one of the people sitting at my table. Oh, yeah. We're 18 years old. I know. Little baby Alicia and Malia. (laughs) I know. And we just walked right into each other's lives and stayed there. I know. It's so wild. (laughs) Yeah. It's amazing. Many shared memories, many decades now. (laughs) Yes. Both of us very much on the, the journey of trying to improve ourselves, trying to understand the world, trying to make you know, sense of, of this crazy life and also appreciating, you know, good jokes and nineties dance parties. So I mean, <laughs> always <my> favorite things. <laughs> yes. We very much have grown together over the years. Yes. And when I was in high school, you guys were in college at Santa Clara university. And so it was about a two and a half hour drive from our hometown in Sonoma. And so I used to come down for weekends occasionally with sometimes with a girlfriend of mine. And when y'all were living together, I would stay and it was just so wonderful. I loved your whole vibe of your, you know, your apartment and including me in things. And so I feel like Alicia is one of my other big sisters. Yeah. We have good memories of those times too. Definitely. (laughs) You were like the bonus friend we got. Like, oh, and then there's another fun bonus. I know. And then when you get older, it's like your (laughs) sister's friends become your friends too. So that's a really great thing. It really is. Yes. It's one of the best things. So before you give us an overview of the Enneagram, Alicia, can you tell us why this personality framework in particular resonates with you? Yes. You know, I first stumbled upon an Enneagram book while we were in college. And I remember looking at it briefly and thinking I was a type nine, which I definitely am not. Uh, (laughs) And thinking, oh, this is kind of interesting, but it didn't really stick with me. and, And until I went to this retreat in 2008 and I really was sort of blown away kind of on two levels, because first of all, as a type two, which I'll say more about later, I'm really obsessed with people and relationships. And so to be able to discover that there is a whole system out there that really maps out what makes people tick, that was something that immediately caught my attention. Just to understand sort of this more detailed map for people's motivations, it it really was incredible. And I realized right away that I could use it to have compassion for people in in a deeper way, knowing where they're coming from and be able to sort of communicate more effectively with folks and just take things less personally. As a type two, I tend to take a lot of things personally. And it was was definitely a, a tool to help me release some of that and to sort of understand like, oh, this isn't really about me. This is about, you know, this person sort of reacting in this way for this reason. Mm-hmm. And the second part that I really found helpful was obviously just learning about my type and understanding my own motivation, looking at those blind spots, those pieces of myself that I was, you know, hoping no one else would see, but I think they <laughs> actually do <laughs> that we all feel. And for me as a two, my sort of primary motivation is wanting to feel love and connection to other people. And I think the Enneagram helped me see that even though, you know, in many ways, my intentions are, are good at trying to kind of create love and, and experience love. There's other pieces of my personality that are actually getting in the way of, of me really being able to do that. And when I looked at other twos in my life, I saw, wow, you know, so many of the other twos who I care about are trying so hard to have these close relationships, but at times they can be controlling and manipulative and can go into sort of a martyrdom place and that all of those tendencies actually push people away from them and prevent them from having those close connections that they want. And so the Enneagram really helped me start to look at those tendencies in myself and to see sort of where are those dynamics at play and what are some of the other options for how I could work with those pieces of myself, bring compassion to myself and 
start to sort of let go some of those patterns that trap me and actually will prevent me from getting the love I want from getting those close relationships and having those be healthy. And so it really helped me to see that I shouldn't always trust that automatic tendency to want to say yes to whatever people ask me to do, because that actually will lead to sort of a burnout in myself and kind of an alienation from other people down the line. So I really feel like the Enneagrams helped me navigate my own life better and have more sanity day to day to help me show up in a different way to be more of the loving person that I want to be. Very convincing. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty yeah. great argument for it. <laughs> yeah, and it, it segues into the next question. I was one of the people, not that questioned the Enneagram as useful, but you were so obsessed with it. And then <laughs> our friend Katie, who was previously on the podcast, was obsessed with it. So I was like, well, how is it different than Myers-Briggs or any of the other personality frameworks. And, you know, it wasn't until Darren and I started using it and trying to figure out our relationship and different patterns that I really was on board myself. But what do you say to people who, first of all, question whether all humanity can fit into nine types? And then what do you think the Enneagram offers compared with other personality frameworks? Yeah, those are great questions. The Enneagram, and I'll say a little bit more about this later, really is drawing on sort of ancient wisdom from a lot of spiritual traditions of what gets in the way for folks when they're trying to be their best selves. And I think that the Enneagram is just sort of drawing on a lot of observation and study of of humans, of other humans over the centuries. Mm. Uh, So it's not sort of an artificial kind of new random selection of categories that people are being stuck into. It's more noticing sort of these patterns that we all have in ourselves and that we tend to have one that's sort of dominant. And it does seem like we're born with a predisposition to sort of an orientation. I mean, I'm sure Malia, you've seen in your children, like <laughs> yep. kids right Pretty away clear. have their own personalities, they right? Even though they're being raised by the same parents, right? We all see that, you know, you sort of come out already with some sort of tendency to, mm-hmm. to act and respond mm-hmm. to the world in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And I think about the Enneagram as it, similar to how we think about hair color or eye color, right? Where it's like, you know, humans don't naturally have green hair, right? Mm -hmm. They have, but they do have a wide variety of colors and, and brown hair all might look a little different, right? Mm -hmm. So just like our enneotype, it isn't sort of who we are. It's a piece of who we are. And even within that piece, there's incredible uniqueness and there's Mm -hmm. incredible variety. So as a type two, there's no other type two, who's just like me, right. Who Mm -hmm. brings my experiences and sort of all the different dynamics that are at play. So there's still uniqueness, but you know, just like my hair color, my hair is brown, like other people's hair is brown. So it's something that you're born with, and there's still going to be a lot of variation and uniqueness kind of within that, that type. Yeah. I really like there is complexity within the Enneagram that you have like a wing this tends to be dominant with the number that's next to you. And also that levels of development. I know Darren really responded to that, that within each type, you could be at a level one or a level 10, meaning like unhealthy version of it, this most stressed out pieces or extreme pieces. And then you can get more balanced and are able to access the other types also, then you're at a higher level of development. Right, right. Which is why we can experience a two who's in a healthy place is like freely kind of loving and warm and making space for you. And an unhealthy two might be trying to really control and smother you, (laughs) which is a pretty wide range, pretty wide. And one of those is really fun to hang out with the other one, not so much. Right. But so, and we all kind of move between those levels. Yeah. Depending on like circumstance or the people who bring it out in you and yeah, right. right, For sure. Age and maturity. Yep. Absolutely. Right. So the Enneagram is amazing because there are so many pieces to it, just 
because our psyches are complex and mm-hmm. because we're complex human beings. And it's a really helpful tool to improve then our ourselves and our relationships and to sort of bring more compassion to the way we see, again, ourselves and other people once we understand sort of what's going on behind why this person is doing this thing that's driving me crazy, <laughs> right? <laughs> I recently was thinking that the Enneagram in some ways is sort of like having a GPS system to navigate people and relationships. Mm. Uh, I like that. That sounds very helpful. (laughs) Right? You program it in, their number, your number. (laughs) Exactly. Because similarly, like right now, all of us could find our way anywhere in the world without a GPS or without a map, but it's going to take you a long time. It's probably Mm going to be painful. Mm -hmm. You're going to get lost. (laughs) (laughs) might get lost versus obviously we all love to have our GPS. It helps us kind of get there and navigate. You still have to do Mm -hmm. the work. You still have to get there, but it's, it's going to be more quick. It's going to be more efficient. It's going to make a little more sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, that's sort of how the Enneagram is for, for understanding people, right? It, It really gives you this lovely map and this lovely way to sort of navigate and see what you're experiencing and have it make sense and have a sense of maybe where you want to go with yourself or maybe with other people and other relationships. The word Enneagram sounds kind of, you know, mystical or something. It just comes from the Greek Ennea meaning nine and gram meaning like a figure that's drawn. So it, that's, that's just the term for sort of this figure that uh, a spiritual teacher named George Gurdjieff brought to sort of the Western world around the 1930s based on all of his spiritual travels to a lot of sort of mystical schools in, in Asia. The idea is that we, we all have all nine personality styles within us and tendencies, especially maybe whatever styles our parents had or our culture really favors. But there's one that we tend to gravitate towards. And really as a child, we come into the world open and, you know, look around and, oh my gosh, it's this scary, crazy place. Right. And, and we all have, you know, various degrees of chaos and challenge in our childhoods, but all of us try to figure out sort of how do we cope with this, right? How do we make ourselves feel okay? How do we make ourselves feel safe? And we develop sort of a core belief that then becomes the sort of driver of our motivation and develops into this personality style. And this is a normal, healthy, good part of developing as a human being is developing that healthy personality and that healthy ego that has a sense of like, Hey, this is who I am. And this is kind of how I get things done. Right. Mm -hmm. As a little two, I was already like, Oh, you know what? If I charm people and I'm helpful and I'm cheerful, (laughs) I'm going to get a lot of positive attention. Right. I'm going (laughs) to, I'm going to get a lot of hugs. Good. You know, I'm going to keep doing this. And so there's a reason that we do why we do it. It works to some degree, right. Which is amazing. The challenge is that even though it was helpful as a child, as an adult, we start to notice, hey, why do I keep doing sort of the same things over and over again in my life, even when I'm starting to see that sometimes they're creating my own suffering and sometimes mm-hmm. they're creating mm-hmm. my own problems, but yet I can't seem to stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why do Quite I- a conundrum. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Why do I keep picking the same kind of person to have an unhealthy relationship Mm -hmm. with? Uh, Why do I keep exploding with anger when I'm mad, even though I know that that's going to damage the people I love, right? But somehow I I keep doing these patterns. So folks often come to the Enneagram because they're frustrated with that. And we want to figure out how do we stop these patterns? How do we change them? They're so deep into our DNA. And, And basically what's happened is that 
you know, instead of us sort of using our personalities for good, our personalities have now started to use us. <laughs> They've developed their own sort of sense of self, right? Who's we, in charge here? Exactly. Yes. Who's driving the bus, right? And it's like, you don't really want your personality driving the bus all the time. It needs to be on the bus. But the, the problem is that we sort of identify with that personality and we start to tell ourselves, oh, this is who I am, right? I can't mm-hmm. change. I'm always like this. As a two, I have to be nice to you. I have to say yes when whatever you ask me, right? Because mm-hmm. that's how I'm a good person. And so once we start to realize that we have other options and that that isn't fundamentally who we are, we can have a lot more freedom and we can have this ability to grow into to being a person beyond our personality, right? Into having sort of these amazing human capacities that are you know, great spiritual heroes have, right? Like Thich Nhat Hanh or Nelson Mandela or Martin Luther King, right? Like mm-hmm. these people who, despite their circumstances, are able to respond in sort of profound, loving, healing, transformative ways, right? Because mm-hmm. they're not stuck in their little narrative about, oh, what do I like? What do I don't like? Oh, how do I feel about this right now? Right? Like, mm-hmm. yes, that's going on, right? That's the work of your personality and your ego. But if we just sort of stay focused on that, if you're sort of in the like, you know, Facebook world of reality, Mm -hmm. you're just not going to be able to really share sort of your bigger gifts with the world. So the Enneagram really just helps us to develop self-awareness and to notice how we're stuck in these automatic patterns and to start to figure out sort of how do we work with that? How do we observe what's really going on with that, with ourselves, take responsibility for that, kind of release our own judgment about that because you see like, oh, this is my pattern. Like this Mm -hmm. is what me and millions of other people who are are doing all the time, right? So you also can't really personally attack yourself for it because, hey, it's just part of being human. <laughs> you're not alone. Um, exactly. You're not alone. So it's also very freeing because we also tend to think, right? Oh, this is my personal, you know, failure that I can't overcome this. Well, mm-hmm. it's just sort of a structural challenge of being a human. And it puts us on the path of, of trying, of, of going deeper, right? Because if we were satisfied with what our personality can produce for us, we wouldn't even try for anything bigger, right? We wouldn't try for anything greater. There's no mud, no lotus, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, right? Like the personality mm-hmm. is a lot of mud to work with. <laughs> <laughs> and it does create sort of a fertile ground for us to, to want more and to start to dig deeper into ourselves. Yeah. And I think like, as we understand and have a better awareness and develop our personality more, we probably appreciate it more because I know that, you know, I'm personally mm-hmm. jealous as a one of Jill's personality as seven, <laughs> because it's the fun one, <laughs> the one who's pursuing, you know, pleasure and adventure and, you know, Avery is that type too. So yes, I think like, as I rise in the levels of development, I'll have more appreciation for my own type, you know, Brene Brown, for example, is one, and she brings just so much wisdom mm-hmm. um, and compassion passion to the world and teaches them through her suffering and struggle is able to help a lot of other people alleviate theirs. Right. I feel like that's really helpful about this framework. It's not like there's a bad type and a good Mm -hmm. type or, you know, that each one has its strengths and its challenges and that, you know, it'd be very boring and probably very unproductive if the world were (laughs) filled with just sevens, you know, like it's, (laughs) it needs all of the types to, to get things done and to bring, you know, different forms of wisdom or joy or connection. And I think that part's really interesting. (laughs) And to answer your other question, I think other personality systems are also valuable. The Enneagram does not explain the world by any means. However, other types don't generally go into sort of the motivation behind behavior. They all often look at sort of predicting what your behavior would be, or they focus on your strengths, 
all of which are great, but the Enneagram is really trying to get at your deeper motivation. What's, what's driving you sort of unconsciously in most of your decisions and most of your behaviors. And so it's trying to get at the why in a way that other personality systems are not trying to get at the why. So I would say that the Enneagram sort of has the most potential to offer you uh, a pathway to growth and to push you to really look at you know, your shadow side, the pieces of yourself that you're trying to not notice, <laughs> the pieces of yourself that are uncomfortable that we all have because we, we, we want to believe that we're sort of just the image we put forward to the world. And the Enneagram is great at poking holes in that image. It's sort of like a 12-step program. The first step is sort of admitting you have a problem, right? <laughs> the first step is admitting, hey, these are my blind spots. These are the ways that I'm not actually living up to the person I want to be. And the Enneagram kind of helps us to really look at that. So you can't do the Enneagram on a really casual basis, I'd say, unlike <laughs> some of these other systems, because it is sort of cutting to your core. It's kind of cutting to to the heart of who at least we think we are, because we are identified with our personalities, even though that isn't at the end of the day, who we truly, truly are. So I'd say it goes deep and it really pushes us to look at sort of those blind spots and it doesn't leave you there. It really offers an analysis of what you can do to work with those pieces of yourself that are difficult. And what are the other ways that you can respond to the world that will be more life affirming and, and opening for you and help us get out of the box that we put ourselves in. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not just like a nice to know kind of thing, like a Cosmo quiz <laughs> kind exactly, of person exactly. <laughs> actually well-studied and like well-applied. And some people use it that way. I mean, I think right now the Enneagram has grown in popularity and in, in, in pop culture, which in general is a good thing. But I think that there is a way that it can be sort of used as a very like quick and sort of shallow, funny way to sort of categorize people. And mm -hmm. that might be fun, but that's really missing the incredible depth of the system and the incredible potential it has for our own transformation. Mm -hmm. So Alicia, why don't you walk us through each of the nine enneotypes and you can talk about how each type can sometimes get in their own way, what stresses them out and what helps them find peace and growth. Sure. Yes. So as Alicia walks us through each personality type listeners, you can listen for your own type, people you love, but just tune into what might be useful to you. And then Jill and I will jump in you know, with what resonates with us along the way. So there's obviously a lot to say about all of these types. So I'm just giving a very brief overview that literally will be, you know, 1%. So yes, just take it with a grain of salt. Um, again, every piece of, of your type might not resonate with you. So I would just say, check in with your own experience, see what resonates, you know, take what's helpful, leave what isn't. Again, this is still sort of an evolving tradition. So there's always going to be also, you know, new pieces that, teachers and, and people are, are developing over time. So we'll start with the lovely type ones. And I happen to love ones. I, I love that they're uh, always trying to bring out like the best in themselves and other people. And I love that, you know, what you see is what you get with ones too. <laughs> they're very, they're, <laughs> I mean, in a, in a reliable way. <laughs> yes. uh, it's, it's they're, they're good, grounded, solid people. So Enneagram uses numbers, sort of like what Jill was saying, just to avoid sort of value judgments. Since again, all mm -hmm. nine types, no one is better than another. And there's also names that go along with them. Different teachers use different names, but the names aren't as important. So don't get as fixated on the names, but I'll mm -hmm. use them just for help when we're talking about the types and when we're trying to remember them. 
So type one is often called the reformer or the perfectionist. And sort of their fundamental desire is to be good and have integrity. And ones are here to teach us about goodness and sacredness. They're kind of looking for this beautiful alignment of everything in, in the world <laughs> and in themselves. And they know it's out there and they want it and they want to make it happen. And it's a wonderful gift that they have. So ones really feel sort of a compulsive need to fix and improve the world around them. They're responsible, they're dedicated to have very high standards for themselves and for other people. They're very hard workers. They're very mission driven. They're clear about their values and the right way to act in the world or to be. And they're always trying to live out that right way with integrity. And since they're always trying to stay true to their principles, they put a lot of pressure on themselves to be perfect and other people, <laughs> they feel obligated <laughs> to call out what is wrong. And they're very attuned to whatever area needs to still be improved. So in my experience working with ones, you know, you'll do an amazing project together and the one will be like, yeah, that was good, but let's, let's look at that 10% of the project we didn't nail. And how can we do that better? Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's great because they're always realizing like, how do we improve this? How do we make it better? But it can be a challenge to others when we're like, Hey, let's just to joy that we did 90% awesome here, you know, <laughs> and what is over there saying, Oh, I don't know, but that 10%, you know, <laughs> next time we got to get it, you know? So, so ones are kind of constantly in that, in that struggle to make things better. And, and it's a gift and it's a challenge, just like all of the Enneotypes mm -hmm. characteristics. Ones have a lot of anger that the world is unjust and imperfect, but because obviously in our culture and in a lot of cultures, being a good person means not getting angry. Ones tend to repress their anger and they often don't sort of notice that a lot of anger kind of is simmering underneath the surface for them and can kind of come out in a way that, that other people can feel, but ones might not really be aware of. And so the key characteristic of whether or not you may be a one is having, unfortunately, <laughs> a very harsh inner critic voice in your head <laughs> that is constantly uh, judging yourself, berating yourself, telling you how you could be better. And this is sort of a driving factor for ones and and sort of fueling, you know, some of their own anger because they also have this inner critic going on that's sort of torturing them all the time that they can't really turn off. And so it makes them judgmental of themselves and then it makes them judgmental of other people, right? Because if you're always, you know, constantly thinking of what could be better, you're also noticing, hey, why don't these other people get it together? Why aren't they making people <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Why do they keep doing the wrong thing? You know, like how badly they're hanging the towel on the towel rack. It's like about to fall off. Clearly you could just pull it up a little bit. It'd be fine. Right. Why can't these other people organize things better? Why can't they, you know, why are people mean? That's just wrong. They need to do the right thing. So ones have this inner critic voice that for them to start to find growth and peace and happiness, they have to start to disidentify with that voice. It's never going to totally mm -hmm. go away for mm -hmm. a one, but they have to start to realize that that's actually not the voice of God. Uh, that is the voice <laughs> of their inner critic. <laughs> and it sometimes might be helpful, but most of the time it's probably actually creating more suffering than it, than it's, <laughs> than it's worth. The voice um, of the devil. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely as it could have that effect too, right? Um, so ones can really kind of get in their own way because they're so worried about being right that they might even avoid being happy because they're afraid that that will maybe 
make them just run willy-nilly and give up all their standards <laughs> um, <laughs> so they can actually avoid that and they can also you know by by trying to have people also live up to those standards they can make other people start to feel like well can I ever live up to that standard mm-hmm, so that mm-hmm. why should I even try right if mm-hmm. I can never quite get there to sort of make it and please this person so so that's another way that they can kind of get in their own way Malia anything you want to add there before I <laughs> oh comments about a, what stresses no. them out and other pathways oh yeah you yeah said a lot that really resonated yeah that inner critic thing is something that I've definitely struggled with my whole life and that when you were talking about being a kid and your coping strategies you know mine was being the good girl and like listening to instructions following directions being helpful and also just like I never it never was good enough like to myself you know one ever mm-hmm. you know my our parents weren't super hard on us my teachers were very supportive but it's always something within me where I can see this perfect vision in my head of something how I can be how the world can be and so just in growing realizing that there is no perfect perfection is a delusion <laughs> I say that mm-hmm. to myself a lot <laughs> And that self-compassion is really just the antidote to perfectionism, but I have to watch myself around my kids because just, there's always stuff, especially with ADHD kids that they're doing, mm-hmm. like they're sitting in the chair a weird way. And I'm afraid they're going to knock something over or get hurt or break the chair. And so I'm like, okay, connect before you correct. That's a Brene Brown thing. <laughs> connect. So like, Hey, honey, like just I'm really glad to see you. Okay. Why don't we sit this way with your feet on the floor? You know, but yes, the, the misalignment between the vision I have in my head and reality is challenging. Alicia, I remember you gave me a bookmark that, you know, paraphrased Thich Nhat Hanh saying it helps to ask what's not wrong. Which I just love. I love <laughs> like, that a lot. So many things. <laughs> yes. It can be like 99% of things are not wrong at the moment. And then I'll find that one little thing that could just be a little bit better. And that's annoying to everybody, <laughs> including <laughs> myself. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, I feel like, you know, looking through the lens of the, the one's journey for you to have two kids with ADHD, right? It's like <laughs> forcing you to really release that perfection, right? Like could yeah. anything else even force you to have to do that more times on a daily basis? I mean, <laughs> you just see how, well, how, the, <laughs> how the universe, you know, does kind of create these opportunities for us to, to grow if we want them, or we could just keep fighting and resisting them and, you know, mm-hmm. being really miserable. <laughs> oh, <But> seriously, <laughs> especially when they're types seven and eight, which just want to do what they want. And they don't have that. I got to follow the rules built in right. <laughs> we <have> very different <laughs> frameworks of what, what we uh, should be doing. Right. But what a gift that, you know, that, you know, you're not trying to make them into little ones yourself. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. of course you are on some level, we all do, but, <laughs> you're, but you have some consciousness now knowing yes. the Enneagram and that allows you to appreciate them for who they are and recognize mm-hmm. that they're not personally rejecting your agenda. Right. They just right. have their own agenda. They have the, right. the colored glasses that they see through that are mm. different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons that ones are so angry is because other people are having more fun than we are. <laughs> just like, <laughs> not fair I feel like the third little pig laying the bricks you know and the other Mm -hmm. two pigs are like playing the flute and dancing (laughs) then then they come to my house when it's time (laughs) and I've got to house them because my moral code I'm like but you shouldn't you should build your own house I shouldn't need to let you in that's That's what I took away from that story (laughs) (laughs) yeah totally unfair (laughs) if I could rewrite it Oh, that's great. I love that. So ones at their best are hardworking, dutiful, prophetic, competent. They can really take their vision, turn it into action. 
Um, and at their worst, they could be inflexible, dogmatic, controlling, judgmental, really serious, right? And like Malia said, obviously everyone is all, all, all those things all the time to some degree. <laughs> so, so a big stressor for ones is obviously making mistakes or having other people make big mistakes. <laughs> Um, Especially if we warn them in advance. Exactly. (laughs) Don't even listen. We already told them what to do. (laughs) Didn't listen. And so similar to what Malia was saying, my my advice on growth and and finding sort of peace and and fulfillment, right, is is for ones is is making time for fun, making time to enjoy life. Like, again, that's not going to necessarily come naturally to ones because there's always something else they feel responsible to be doing. Mm-hmm. And so actually scheduling in time for fun, time for relaxing, taking vacations, right? Getting away from their home life and work life where all of their responsibilities are right there can really help them to start to relax that inner critic strength and give themselves a little bit more like peace and be able to enjoy the fruits of their labor, right? And, and start to you know enjoy life beyond sort of striving for that vision of perfection. Yes. A couple of different therapists have told me that play and rest versus like, what I'm like, what can I do to just implement this framework better? Like understand this internal family systems and understand blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I think you need to rest more. I think you need to play more. (laughs) Really? Interesting. (laughs) Yes. I agree. (laughs) So yeah. So having uh, a seven as a daughter, she loves to play. And that has been really helpful in trying to schedule in times like breaks between mm-hmm. work sprints for me to like dance around the room or play a song in the guitar and just building it into my day as a habit has been really helpful. Jill, anything you wanted to add? <laughs> I mean, I, I know that ones can be hard on themselves and others, but I also really admire, you know, Malia, you and other ones that you have this inner desire to just make the world a better place, you know, mm-hmm. that you want things to be just and fair and, you know, that you'll work for those things. And I, I really respect that because sometimes it feels like you're the one in the group project doing all the work and everyone else is slacking <laughs> off. So I do appreciate that. <laughs> Something I also really like about ones in my life is how conscientious they are, you know, that they want to make sure other people are getting what they need, that things are just and equitable and that they show up for you, you know, that they're reliable and will advocate for others and are there for you. And they're always working for a positive change. And that also reflects in their relationships. So ones are great people to have in your world. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So moving on to the the twos, which I already (laughs) gave you a little preview about. Um, So the twos are called the helper. And as I said, the, the core desire is to be loved and twos are here to teach us about sort of love and kind of the, the sweetness quality of love, the sort of motherly, like merging, just very sweet, caring kind of quality of love. All the types sort of have their own take on love, <laughs> but twos are definitely trying to sort of bring that like really nurtured and sweet sort of experience of love to to other people. And they want to experience that for themselves. So twos want to help. Their idea is that, you know, if I can't get all that love that I want, then I can make that love happen. (laughs) (laughs) So ones are trying to like make this rightness happen and this alignment and this sort of perfection happen. Twos are starting to say, well, I want this love feeling. So I'm going to try to make it happen. And I'm going to make it happen by helping. I'm going to make it happen by kind of 
creating these relationships I want and making people sort of need me and appreciate me by what I'm doing. So twos are very attuned to the needs and feelings of other people, and they feel other people's feelings more than their own and immediately kind of want to respond. And so there's obviously a good side of that, right? Twos can be very good at reading you, understanding what you need, and then giving it to you, making it happen. Sometimes I joke that I'm a full service too, you know, like, oh, here, I've, I've, I've fixed this for you. I've already done this. I've anticipated this need, right? They're very tuned in. So twos can be very generous, right? In what they want to give advice, emotional support, food, clothes, thoughtful <laughs> gifts, everything. Um, and they use their empathy to kind of tune in and, and perceive what is needed. And twos then prioritize relationships as the most important thing in their lives. And they invest their time and energy in building those relationships. So for twos, everything is about relationships and they've been taking time to, to really build those. However, as you can imagine, when you focus on other people's needs, other people's feelings, giving to other people, the person whose needs often gets forgotten is the twos. Mm -hmm. And so twos then end up feeling very kind of depleted and resentful because they look around and say, hey, wait, who's really focused on meeting my needs? I'm certainly not. <laughs> and so then twos start to think that you should meet their needs, right? Because they've done so much for you. So twos really want to give sort of altruistically and selflessly, and sometimes they do, but often they really fall into this trap of giving to get. And they're really hoping to get a return from the person they're giving to. And that might be just in friendship, in, you know, affection, in work, in some kind of way. So twos are generally looking for sort of a certain response. Again, this is unconscious on the part of twos, but they often become, you know, hurt or angry if they don't get the response that they're looking for, right? Because they're putting so much effort into you know, this thoughtful gift. And then you didn't even say thank you. Oh my gosh, you know, or, or you just said, oh, thanks. And then you kind of walked away instead of giving me a big hug and telling me how thoughtful it was. Right. So, so ungrateful. So, so I'm taking my present back. <laughs> exactly. So what I had to realize is too, is, oh my gosh, you know, I have this script and other people aren't following it. You know, what is up with that? <laughs> Did they miss the rehearsal? You know, I, I give you this, we embrace, you say this, you cry, I cry, we hug again, you know, instead this person just sort of ignored me and walked away. This is the most terrible thing ever. So as you can imagine, if I'm sure you're all thinking of twos in your lives. So twos trying to earn this love and affection, it can kind of lead to other people experiencing it in sort of a manipulative or controlling way, right? Because again, even though twos are smiling, there's still an agenda there. Right? <laughs> Often, um, there's still something that maybe they they want to get out of that, and they can also create dependencies in others to feel needed, and they can have again sort of a martyrdom complex. They're the master guilt trippers, you know, making little <laughs> comments. So, uh, you know, my family's Italian. We come from a long line of guilt tripping, loving <laughs> Italian women. Catholics, yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, you know, know just what to say about oh. Oh, so it's great to see you, but I haven't seen you lately. You know, there's <laughs> always a little, little comment there about, you know, what more you should be doing. So again, twos really can get in their own way by trying so hard to get others to like or love them that they're actually pushing them away, right? They're actually making people sort of like, oh, this person's a little, it's too much, right? They can be sort of too clingy and too trying to kind of control this whole situation. And the other challenge, right, for twos is to start to recognize their own needs and to recognize how to receive from others. That's difficult for twos because they're so stuck in sort of their 
identity as the giver. I mean, it was just my birthday and, you know, just getting presents and cards. It's like, I love it. And I'm slightly uncomfortable because I'm just used <laughs> to the one giving them and rather than actually receiving. So I, I still feel sort of a self-consciousness about it. So at their best, twos can be loving and generous and kind, compassionate, responsible, you know, dedicated, going to work super hard for the people they care about and the, the things they care about. But at their worst, they can be very flattering, manipulative, people-pleasing, possessive, controlling, resentful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I could go on and on. Uh, <laughs> so one of the things that stresses twos out then is when people do not like them, right? When someone is not responding the way they want, which unfortunately happens a lot. <laughs> and so for twos, they have to learn to focus on the person they really can control and are responsible for, which is themselves. And also they need to take time to do sort of their own creative pursuits and really kind of go deep within themselves to figure out kind of who they are outside of all these relationships, right? Outside of all these attachments that they've created and to figure out kind of what's really going on internally for them since twos generally aren't tuned into that. So it's really helpful to, for twos then to just be alone because if, if even one other person is in the room, the two is auto-tuning to them <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and starting to sort of respond and adapt. And so it's really helpful for twos to, again, to just take time literally for themselves, to take care of themselves, to do their own self-care and to sort of explore their own kind of creative pursuits. Mm -hmm. yeah, and I feel like a lot of the twos that I know who, again, are loving and generous and wonderful people, I feel like they can also, do you feel like you lean toward burnout sometimes because you're giving so much that you're, you have nothing left for yourself at the end of the day? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Do you hit a point where it's just like, no more, I can't take anymore. It's like sort of almost a rebellion. Right. Like you guys take care of yourselves. I'm yeah, done. Right. <laughs> and then you'll see. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Then you'll appreciate me. Oh yes. 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 I know I've definitely had fantasies like, oh, if I died, you would all miss me so much. And I do. <laughs> Finally have that shrine to me that I've always deserved. Exactly. <laughs> yes. No, that that's, that's actually is kind of twos going into stress mode, you know, eventually do get to a point where they do say no and they do set a boundary, but yeah, it's usually done in a, you know, explosive, destructive way because they haven't learned to say no sooner. Right. So mm -hmm. that's, that's a huge, mm -hmm. huge growth opportunity for twos. And again, I think a way that the Enneagram really helps twos to see like, this is actually leading to you going crazy if you continue <laughs> down the path, right. Of, of giving, of giving too much, but it's like all the types it's, it's going to be a struggle every day for twos to say no and to set healthy boundaries for themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love twos. A lot of my friends are twos and yeah, Alicia, you are always there. Just a ball of love for every just up and down in our lives. Just always want to hear about it and want to be there to support us. Mm -hmm. Very thoughtful and like attuned to what we like and what we would like for gifts and all of that. I really appreciate that. And just wanting to help and be be of service in any way. And you really love your relationships. Like I know that you you've always had so many friends. And it's funny because <laughs> in college we would um hear Alicia on the phone telling the same story, but to a different person, like <laughs> making the rounds. <laughs> 
got to keep my seven best friends all updated. (laughs) They want to know. We got to have a small group call or something like that. (laughs) And yeah, my friend Beth will just text me just all the emojis and exclamation points, like very enthusiastic. (laughs) And then then my sister-in-law, Megan, always anticipates our needs. Like you were saying, like when we come stay with them, it's just like, you can tell how much work she's put in to make sure we're comfortable and fed and the foods that we like because she's ordered in advance and I can see how that can get to be a lot when you're trying to especially when like a lot of people are coming over at once to just take on all of those needs and all of that energy and feel that responsibility to just make everyone happy and comfortable so I appreciate that about all of you and also want to help carry some of that burden for you (laughs) we appreciate that (laughs) (laughs) so type three the achiever or the performer So the core motivation of the three is to be valuable. And they're here to teach us about value and glory and sort of the fundamental shininess of the universe. I mean, if you really just look around, right, it's just like we have this, you know, radiating world and and people kind of bring their light, people bring their energy and threes are really aware of that and they're tapped into that and they, they are attracted to that and they bring it out in themselves and in others. It's sort of just this inherent like value that all creation has. It's so beautiful. And so I think about threes, they're sort of like the shiny stars of the Enneagram. Mm-hmm. And these are people determined then to be successful and prove their value. So as, as you've heard in each of these types, right? It's like our ego is trying to make sort of a fake version of what our soul is really longing for. <laughs> so the, the three is longing for this, this, this sense of deep value. And they then decide, okay, I can get recognition and praise and sort of an affirmation of value if I'm successful, if I work really hard and I do what I need to do to sort of prove that I have this value, that I'm producing something amazing in the world. And so they often define success by whatever their family or kind of cultural group or social sphere really defines success as. And people often really admire them for all their personal accomplishments, for their charisma, for their ability to go after their goals and work really hard. But the challenge for threes is that they often start to see themselves as sort of human doings instead of human beings. Mm -hmm. And when they're healthy, they're committed to their own development and developing other people. And they can bring out the best in others and they really don't need the credit. That's, that's when that's sort of the healthiest version Mm -hmm. of of threes. So their commitment to success combined with their ability to read what others want really allows them to sort of be the chameleons of the Enneagram. That's the most important quality of a three. Like everyone on the Enneagram can be hardworking and achieve and get amazing stuff done and be successful. Obviously everyone likes success. Nobody likes failure, (laughs) but for threes, sort of the, the core quality that makes them different is this ability to really change themselves to adapt to what they think this person in front of them needs or what the group needs in order for them to be successful or in order for them to get it done. So they learn early on how to perform in ways that will give them positive attention and that will create the response that they want. So they can really shape shift and they, and they really are aware of their image and they put a lot of time and energy into managing their image to appear as successful as possible. So the suffering comes then right in that they've over time identified with the masks that they wear and they've abandoned some of their true self in order to kind of continue this performance, right? And be who people want to be and sort of respond to the audience in front of them. So they start to worry that maybe maybe there's nobody there behind this mask. Maybe 
I don't really have value. And maybe all these people, they do just love me now because of what I've done, right? And, and this identity that I've created, and I'm not even sure how much of that is me. So threes can see feelings as an impediment to success and their goals of like achievement and efficiency. They love being efficient. They love multitasking most of the time, right? So they often can sort of, again, put aside their feelings in, in order to kind of get to their goals more efficiently. And that's another part of losing touch with who they are and what's really going on inside of them since they aren't spending time sort of feeling their feelings. You can often experience threes as different people in different settings with different groups of people, people who could have very different friends. Some of the threes in my life, I definitely experience how they're different with different groups that I'm with. And I'm like, oh, wait, who is the real you here? You know, are, are you the one you are with me or with them? Or, you know, what's really going on? But they're great at, again, adap adapting and reading the room and connecting with people in, in a different way. But they start to have these identity issues about kind of who they are really and where their value comes from. So threes at their best are confident, efficient, charismatic, practical, optimistic. They're great at making it happen and making it look good. My husband, who's a three, his famous lines is, you know, make it look good. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike the ones who are going to worry about like, are you cutting corners? Are you really doing it the right way? Threes are more like, oh, don't worry about that. Just love at the end of the day, if it looks amazing, that's all that matters, right? And you can probably see a lot of American culture in that too, right? Where it's like, oh, put on sure. a good face. Make it look awesome, put some accessories, shine it up a bit. Oh, it's, it's great. We can ignore our, you know, horrific historic racism and genocide. Don't look over there. Just look at this pretty thing. Look over here. here. America, right. So threes at their worst then can become uh, narcissistic, superficial, overly competitive, deceptive, vain. They can really believe their own PR. So, so, you know, they've created this image and sort of this narrative about themselves that they want you to affirm and they can really start to believe it and then be very defensive if you start to point out the parts that might not fit that image that they've created. And they can also be kind of transactional, right? And start to use people to get things done and their drive to get things done. So threes get stressed out when their image gets tarnished, right? When they get a little exposed, when a piece of them maybe is called out that they didn't want to be seen or to be called out in front of other people. And to move towards peace and, and growth, threes really need to take time away from overworking and sort of this constant performance mode. They also need to schedule time to rest and to do practices like meditation or other practices to really get in touch with their true feelings, their true desires, their true preferences, and to sort of reconnect with these parts of themselves that aren't on display and that aren't part of their get it done apparatus that they're constantly in that zone of. And so this will help them to get less attached to their image and move towards this deeper sense of authenticity that they're longing for. And, and healthy threes can see through the BS really well, and they start to understand and, and show up as their more authentic selves. Yeah, I have a good friend who's the three and love her so much. She just does so much for her people, for the community, all of the things she's there. And so I can see how that wears on her and how difficult it is not to volunteer or be the president of this. And it's just like an obligation or a compulsion, I guess. And I remember her reaction when I shared one of the characteristics like you were talking about is the shape shifting. And I had read an example of, so someone's giving a eulogy of a three and each person that goes up and, and speaks on this person, it's like, says something so completely different. It's like, as if it were a different person <laughs> being eulogized each time. And she's like, wow, yeah, that's, it's true. And I think it can be 
a positive thing too, when it's called for in that situation, like in internal family systems or parts work, you have all these characters inside of you. That's the framework. And you bring them out. Like the true self is able to call them up at different times and at different intensities to meet the needs of the situation. And the challenge comes when it's too intense or it's the wrong part for the, this job, you know, I think vulnerability is so difficult for threes too, because it does pierce that veneer that they have it all together and that we're totally strong and got it handled. And yeah, I just want to be like, it's okay. Like not to pretend or, you know, just to put that down and not to do everything at level 10, you know, I mean, I'm saying this is a perfectionist, but it's like when <laughs> hosting a dinner, for example, just having it all in place and beautiful and it's just so much. And I just like want them to lay that burden down. So I think ones and threes have those kinds of things in common and we can kind of mm-hmm. help each other. Just like if we trust each other, be like, it's okay, honey. Like we can just have this be casual and connect. And that's the most important thing. Totally. Like you're pointing out, Malia, there's definitely overlaps between the types mm. in terms of, you know, different pieces where you can resonate. Yeah. And so sometimes that leads to mistyping too, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it might take a while for people to understand their type because you might identify like, oh, the three is hardworking. And obviously, Malia, you're super hardworking, you know, and so you might be like, oh, I'm a three, but it it does help you understand where the types are coming from. Since we have some of the similar related drives, it just shows up differently in how we do it. Mm -hmm. I think I've known more threes in maybe a work or school context, and they can be wonderful to have on your team. You know, like Mm. they really get stuff done, can be very good at like adapting to situations, bringing out the best in people. But I think that having your value tied to your productivity or the things that you are doing can also be a challenge that when you're not producing or you're not at your best, then you still are a valuable human at your core. It's not just what you're creating. Mm -hmm. Right. Threes can definitely be workaholics and they can Mm -hmm. definitely struggle with depression if they're not able to work, able to do their thing. Mm -hmm. And then some threes, they actually are so afraid of failure that they don't even really try. Mm -hmm. And so they can also be trapped in this like, well, I probably can't succeed. So I'm not even really going to try and I'm going to stay safe and I'm not Mm going to kind of go big. There's the threes that either they're going big and hard for all their dreams. And then there's Mm -hmm. the threes who are not (laughs) Mm -hmm. because they're trying to stay safe from Mm -hmm. that fear of failure, that that can actually stymie them from going out and really engaging in the world. Mm -hmm. So the type four is called the individualist, sometimes called the romantic, and their core desire is to be true to themselves and to be authentic. And they're here to teach us about identity and depth. And fours are motivated to feel understood by others. And they kind of have this hunger to really understand the meaning of life. They're very sensitive, reflective. They want to process their intense emotions They often need to kind of withdraw to to do so. And they are the witnesses to the world of human experience. Fours can really hold it all. They are really wonderful at validating you on whatever you are feeling or going through and holding it with some deep compassion. I know the fours in our lives, Kat or Katie, who was on the (laughs) podcast before, is, is a wonderful four that unlike the ones and twos who are kind of concerned about being good and right and let me have the right feeling and experience, the fours are really like, oh, yes deep love, been there, 
<laughs> deep pain been there deep <laughs> anger and revenge been there I mean they're you know they're all the, they're feel, just, all the feels all the feels they've had it they've been there they're not mm-hmm. shocked you really can't shock the fours mm. you know with like whatever you're feeling or wanting to do they're like uh-huh tell me more about that you know yes that sounds totally reasonable and you're like it does as as a one or a two or it's the types that are this stronger super ego critiquing ourselves you know oh you're just okay with me saying how much I hate this person and you're not trying to tell me I'm bad okay you know, <laughs> accepting yes yeah <laughs> validating they're, they're, they're very able to hold it if you're going through grief you know a four can be there for you in that you know mm-hmm. they're very aware of suffering that's a core piece of sort of their identity is is being aware of their own suffering mm-hmm. and, and the suffering of other people so they can hold it all and they can really validate it so a challenge for fours is that they they feel sort of fundamentally different from others and they then tend to focus on what makes them different. They feel they're missing something that seems to come easily to other people. And so they end up struggling with envy and sort of a sense that the grass is always greener. They feel like other people were given the secret recipe for happiness that they missed out on other that everyone else has sort of had an easier childhood than they did, or that everyone else has some other pieces that make it easy for them to be happy. You know, look at those twos and sevens always positive all the time. It's just so easy for them, you know? (laughs) So they, they tend to focus on sort of what's missing in themselves and in whatever situation they're in a little bit similar to ones focusing on, you know, what's not right or what could be improved. But for them, it's like, what's missing, you know, what, what's missing from this group, from this dynamic. And again, it can be helpful, but it can also sort of limit your view of reality, right? Because you start to hyper-focus on sort of one aspect of it. And yeah. Like if you don't have a partner in your life, then it could be, oh, I can't be happy without a partner and really mm-hmm. hyper-focusing on that. Exactly. Exactly. And you're missing out on enjoying all the other things that you have mm-hmm. in your life. Mm-hmm. So fours are often artistic and they really want to express themselves fully, but they still believe no one's likely to really understand them. They can be over-identified with their feelings as a way to maintain sort of a sense of intensity that makes them feel alive. And that kind of gives them this feeling of being a deep, intense, passionate person. Mm -hmm. Um, And they often look through their current reality through the lens of their past experiences and their past suffering, which can make it hard for them to move on. And it can make them get a little trapped by their past. They would rather feel sort of either really high or really low. They don't want to feel sort of a sense of ordinariness or boringness, because again, Mm -hmm. they're coming into the world as little children, sort of attuned to this incredible depth and beauty and profoundness of the universe, right? And so their ego is sort of trying to recreate that by getting them to focus on their own uniqueness and how they're different and the intensity of all these emotions that they feel and keep rehashing these intense emotions and these stories, right? And that maybe will give them this cheaper version of deep mystical connection to the beauty of the universe, right? And the tragedy and all of it, right? So it's, it's again, our egos trying to give us a piece of what we really want, but not really being able to deliver and then sort of getting in our own way. So they're not interested in small talk is what you're saying. Not usually. <laughs> Get no. right to it. Exactly. That's, that's hard deep, for very fast. Yeah. <laughs> you know, meaningless tasks and mm. meaningless conversations, not high on their list of things they want to do right now. But yeah, you want to get to know them and start sharing, you know, your deep childhood trauma, they're interested. (laughs) They're available. (laughs) They live in like a higher amplitude than, than other types. If you think about sound waves, the intensity Mm. of it, the highs and the lows are Mm -hmm. taller, the peaks, peaks and valleys. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And I feel like the fours in my life, like you were saying that they're able to capture or understand the human experience, the whole range of human experience. Mm-hmm. And I love that about the fours mm-hmm. that, you know, when you need someone to be there with you and whatever you're, you're going through, they're mm-hmm. amazing people. And they mm-hmm. also, you know, often are creators themselves, you know, whether they're musicians or writers to be able to capture those things mm-hmm. that are challenging. I, I really like that about fours. Yeah. They inspire the rest of us to deeply reflect and to, mm-hmm. you know, be able to hold these other experiences because they're creating beautiful cr- creative containers for them mm, through their right. art, through their expression. Mm-hmm. So fours can endure great suffering. They can kind of over-identify with their suffering and be so attached to it that, that prevents them from finding happiness because that's part of their identity. They bring a vulnerability that really can inspire others to share and be their true selves. So when fours find a way to kind of move out of their tendency to look inside and process And when they can sort of engage with the world, they can really bring their talents, their compassion, their depth to share with other people and improve the world around them. And that this outer kind of engagement helps keep them from being overly focused on their feelings or overly focused on what might be bringing them down. So fours can get in the way, again, by focusing so much on their own suffering that it becomes this defense against potentially feeling happiness, right? And (laughs) and they're so afraid of, you know, if I feel that happiness, I don't want to lose it. So I'm just not even going to feel it, right? I don't want to be abandoned. I don't want to lose the little happiness I might be able to have. So I just won't even go there. (laughs) I'll just stay in this comfortable (laughs) place of my own suffering. (laughs) So comfortable. For fours, it kind of is. And that's that's the tough truth for Mm -hmm. them. Like, each of us have this sort of tough truth we have to realize about ourselves mm-hmm. that we're like, oh shoot, you know, as a two, I'm like, oh, I'm actually trying to control people. Oh no, you know, <laughs> you know, and it, like four is like, oh, I'm actually really attached to this suffering. Like mm-hmm. I have to figure out how to let some of that go for me to really kind of grow and find the, the deeper happiness, but I've got to take a risk for that. So fours have to learn that they can be happy without sacrificing their authenticity mm-hmm. and that they have to learn to value their own inherent goodness and recognize that they, they aren't actually lacking anything fundamentally, that that's part of the narrative of the personality. That's not their fundamental being. So at their best, fours are warm, compassionate, intuitive, supportive, creative, you know, they're fighting for good things in the world. At their worst, they can be moody, self-absorbed, withdrawn, self-conscious, kind of moralistic, you know, have a lot of opinions about how things should be, right? And so what stresses fours out, so fours are very sensitive to feeling rejected by other people or having their feelings dismissed. And to move towards peace and growth, they need to take time to cultivate a sense of what's really wonderful about themselves and about their lives. Um, It might be helpful for fours to make a list of things that they're grateful for, to reflect on, and to sort of list out even their own positive attributes to counter their focus on what's missing. Yeah, I think Glennon Doyle is a four, and I think she's a great example of someone who embodies all the range of all of that and is very comfortable just speaking the truth and being honest. And she's created lots of containers to hold a lot of pain and suffering during the pandemic, especially for me. Mm -hmm. Her Instagram lives really just like brought humor to it, but also depth and the sense that I'm here with you. I've been there and it's okay. Normalizing all of the feelings. So Mm -hmm. I appreciate that about her writing and her speaking. And it makes you feel that no matter how you show up, then that's going to be okay. Right. Like seen and accepted. Yeah. Understood. Mm -hmm. Validated. Yep. So moving on to the five. So the type five is called the investigator or the observer. And the kind of core desire of the five is to be competent. And the fives are here to teach us about illumination and clarity. 
if you think about those moments in your life where you've just been not really struggling with something, but just you had a moment where you suddenly get a real insight into something, like you just feel the sort of illumination come through you, right? It's not something you had to force that happened. It just, it just came, right? And suddenly you knew, here's how I should respond, or here's how I should think about this, or here's how these things connect, right? That's the feeling that fives are, are longing for, is that, that feeling of illumination. So when fives arrive in the world, they also, similar to fours, have a sense that they don't quite fit in. Fours, though, have maybe a sense that like they're, they're a human, but they're wounded. Fives wonder if they're human. Fives are like, like, am I an alien? A robot? I miss out on the human manual that was given out here. Um, So little little fives kind of feel like everyone else might have been given this instruction booklet on how to be a human, but I wasn't. And so they, in response, they really want to figure out how everything works. They think, okay, well, I've got to, I've got to learn then. I've got to like figure this whole world human thing out so I can navigate it. So they become voracious really in seeking knowledge and information and they end up becoming experts in the subject areas that really matter to them. They like to ask questions and challenge traditional opinions, test out assumptions. This can often make them very kind of countercultural. And they often use their knowledge to come up with innovative new ideas, and they can be very creative and objective thinkers. However, they can come off as sort of intellectually arrogant because they often want to show how competent they are and they really value accuracy over being agreeable. Um, <laughs> my ex-boyfriend who was a five, you know, I sort of teased him sometimes when he would correct me about little things that were inaccurate. <laughs> just, I would just say accuracy because he, he always needed to, you know, have a like tweak a little thing I said that wasn't a completely accurate. But of course, for me as a two, I'm like, oh, who cares about accuracy? <laughs> I'm going for this feeling, you know, I'm, I'm going for this feeling. But fives, you know, they, they're, they're very good at, at being focused on accuracy. And precision. <laughs> precision, exactly. So fives often feel that they don't have enough sort of inner resources to engage with the world and with other people. And so they limit how much they give of themselves, their time, their energy, and that this can make relationships feel a bit one-sided for fives. Um, fives need a lot of alone time to pursue their interests and to recharge their batteries. You can find a lot of fives like reading Wikipedia. I feel like that's a <laughs> quick check if you're a five. Do you find yourself reading Wikipedia for long periods of time? And then monitoring it for accuracy. If the answer is no, you're exactly. And then editing for accuracy. Exactly. If, if, if your answer is that sounds horrible, then you're definitely not a five. Um, <laughs> not that all fives do that, but you know, if you are a five, mm-hmm. you probably, you can understand it. Even if you don't do it, you're like, oh yeah, that sounds like a great way to use some of your time. <laughs> or um, like go directly to the original source. <laughs> exactly. And read a few more books about that. Right. <laughs> so fives try to keep their emotional and relational needs at a minimum. So sometimes you can experience a five a bit like a floating head. <laughs> and they can experience themselves that way. Like, oh, I have a body, I have a heart. Where are those things? It can take fives a while to really get in touch with their own emotions and even like experience them consciously to some degree. Mm-hmm. So fives, because they're not sure that they'll be successful in engaging directly with the world, they often prefer to sort of stay in the comfort of their own minds and to try to kind of keep figuring everything out before they take any action. So they spend a lot of time observing and listening and pondering the things they encounter. And they can get in their own way, again, by spending so much time thinking about life instead of actually making contact with it or engaging that then they're not really able to access the full knowledge about reality that they're seeking, right? Because we all know it's like, 
you can't learn to swim by reading a book, right? You got to get in the water (laughs) and it's going to be uncomfortable. You're going to get wet. It's going to be awkward. You know, Mm -hmm. there's all these pieces of knowledge and understanding reality that you can only get through experiencing it. But because five's tendency is to say, oh, let me wait till I experience that. They're actually not getting all that information that they, that they actually want that would help them navigate it. Mm. And so since they're keeping themselves again at a safe distance from some parts of reality, that also can keep them sort of further isolated and a bit alienated from life and from others. When fives are able to cultivate contact with their bodies and their feelings and, and be more grounded, they can be amazing leaders. They can bring their expertise and their intellectual brilliance to bear in, in this like lovely objective way. Fives at their best then are analytical, objective, sensitive, curious, wise, persevering, and innovative. And fives at their worst can be distant, stingy, unassertive, critical of others, stubborn, and arrogant. So what stresses fives out? So having their boundaries crossed can really stress fives out. They, again, need space sort of physically and emotionally, and they can feel really easily depleted by the demands of other people. To move towards peace and growth, they have to sort of build their capacity, again, to be more in their body and experience their own inner resources so that they will have more to give getting more grounded through doing sort of body work practices that also engage their feelings like yoga or qigong, those could be helpful for fives to, again, re-engage kind of the heart and the body and, and, and recognize like, I have these inner resources to draw on instead of sort of retreating again to their heads and to information and just trying to get more of that. Yeah. All of this sounds very familiar. My husband, Darren is a five. So yeah, the whole range of what you described. And he says that as a kid, he felt out of place a lot and he didn't know how you're supposed to act and just felt really awkward. And he feels like that too, when we go to parties and so on, especially after pandemic times. And it's interesting because in the workplace where he is an expert at what he does, he's very confident. And with all of that knowledge, I mean, that's what gives them their powerful feeling mm-hmm. that he knows knows what to do in any situation, whatever comes up. The mind palace is how I've heard um, it described as like fives retreat into their mind palaces. And he is funny. He reads magazines cover to cover because he wants all of the knowledge, like the breadth of knowledge. And for me, that sounds like absolute torture because I will be drawn to things I'm interested in. This is an ADHD thing as well, but all of the other stuff, I'm just, I would literally fall asleep or tune out (laughs) or not read the magazine at all. But it's so interesting because he will bring in some random fact that he's read because he's read the Atlantic cover to cover or Esquire or whatever. Mm -hmm. But also that means the Atlantic, we have probably like, I don't know, 20 copies because they're so long and in depth that it takes (laughs) them a really long time. (laughs) So, but yes, uh, we really appreciate his knowledge and vision. We, it's funny, we've had to communicate about when we make decisions together, he's usually researched the thing already and has kind of the best option in his mind. And when he starts the conversation, he's already done that. And so I haven't had a chance to do anything. And so I'm like, well, I want a say in this too. He's like, well, I've already done all this work. And so he'll try to bring me in to the process earlier these days, which is Mm. helpful because then I can feel, you know, if we go redesigning our backyard or something. And so he's not too set on something already that he believes is the best and most optimal thing for our backyard. (laughs) So (laughs) communication is very important and the emotional vocabulary. He's really learned a lot. He says for me over the years and the Gottmans, John and Julie Gottman, and just identifying emotions, being able to name them and then being able to talk about them and bring it up. I used to have to pull things out of him. Like I knew he was upset. Are you upset? No, just like, I know. Okay. Like just, is it this, is it that (laughs) now he is much more forthcoming, which is extremely helpful. 
Yeah, the fives in my life, I really like how much research they do, you know, and how analytical they are and always looking for, yeah, the best optimal way um, Mm. and using that to find really creative solutions. And I can see how it would be challenging sometimes if you are very much in your head or if you don't have that kind of emotional vocabulary to be able to relate to people and being able to communicate your feelings as well as, you know, this is the best path forward for this thing and having all these different reasons. So I think it's great that you and Darren have been able to accept each other's influence in that way um, Mm -hmm. and teach each other and learn from each other in that way. Yeah. And he's made me more aware of just energy conservation in terms of our own personal energies, Mm -hmm. because he feels sapped by having to engage with like intense situations and people and just anytime like we go to an event, he wants to come back and have like a decompression introverting period. And I think that's so healthy. It's not something I would have really thought about before, but we do that intentionally now because he does feel depleted. And when other people demand things of him or want things from him, which is part of the nature of his job with client work, then when he comes home, he really needs a rejuvenation time. Mm -hmm. So moving on to type six, type six is called the loyalist. And their desire is to be secure. And they're here to teach us about awakeness and guidance. So six's main motivation is to find safety and security. And they have a strong sense of the unpredictability and danger of the world, which I think we can all agree is a pretty scary place, uh, especially (laughs) these days. They look around when they come as children and think, okay, yeah, there's a lot of bad stuff that could happen here. (laughs) Um, and that gives them a great sense of anxiety and so in order to cope with this they become experts at anticipating risk and planning for the worst case scenario and when I say planning for the worst case scenario it's not just big things like okay what if I lose my job or what if my house burns down right they start to think about worst case scenarios for you know every single situation even little things right like ordering a sandwich like wait did they forget the mustard you know I mean it's (laughs) you know they just start to see the world through that lens right just Mm -hmm. like all of our types we kind of have this way of of looking at even small things and big things (laughs) so part of where this is all coming from for sixes is that they've lost a sense of sort of inner authority and they worry that they also don't have the inner resources to really handle life. So they have a hard time finding that and trusting their own innate guidance. And they start to seek outer authorities or important role models or experts to consult to help give them that guidance. So the world is a scary place. They feel anxiety about it. They've kind of lost touch with this inner voice that helps all of us sort of navigate the world, right? And sort of trust the universe. So to replace that, they start to collect authority figures that they put in their head and they consult with them when they're trying to make decisions and they're trying to figure out how to navigate life. However, as you can imagine, if you're collecting a bunch of those folks, they don't all agree. (laughs) (laughs) So that often then can paralyze the six because there's no kind of one clear answer from an authority figure in their head, right? There's a lot of different perspectives. There's different ways it can work out. So sixes then can sort of struggle to to make decisions. They can overthink things. They continue to doubt themselves, even maybe after they've made a decision. And a part of them also sort of resents being dependent on those authorities, right? Because they know deep, deep, deep down that they have that inner guidance. They've just lost touch with it. So that can also make them have sort of a rebellious kind of anti-authority streak, and they can actually be kind of confrontational with authority. So sixes are called the loyalist because they're very loyal to the people in their lives. And that's sort of part of their strategy to not be left without support. So they can be very dedicated to their friends, their families, their communities, 
and they'll often fight harder for their beliefs than they even will for themselves. They're very loyal to institutions. They keep them going. So sixes, in most cases, they're very loyal followers. They're very dedicated people. They don't want to be flashy. They don't want to go and be in the limelight like the threes and be like, hey, everybody, look at me. They're kind of the opposite of that, right? Where they're just really happy to dutifully do their job and show up and humbly kind of do what needs to be done and be very consistent, very reliable. They're obviously super helpful for analyzing risk. <laughs> They've thought a lot about it. <laughs> uh, my dad's a six. He's wonderful at you know giving me advice about a lot of practical things because I know he's really thought it through and he's anticipated what might go wrong and how to protect myself. So it's, it's really helpful to have them around. And even though they, they kind of battle this underlying fear and anxiety, in moments of crisis, they often step up very courageously and really get the job done. Once they sort of stop overthinking whether they have the courage, they actually have the courage. They find it and they're able to lead and they're able to do really amazing things, again, in a very humble way. So when they can find and trust that inner guidance, they're able to really accomplish amazing things. So Frodo in Lord of the Rings, great six example, just humbly, I'm going to take this ring. I'm going to go all the way through all these perils. You know, I'm not doing it for the glory. I'm doing it because this is what my group needs. This is what my community needs, right? And I'm, I'm okay taking this sort of one step at a time. I don't need a lot of like flash and celebration. I'm fighting hard for the common good. So sixes often get in their own way because their constant questioning and doubting of both themselves and others can kind of further separate them from the inner and outer support that they really want. So they can kind of create a self-fulfilling prophecy for themselves, right? Where they're worried that people might abandon them, but then they themselves sort of start pushing those people away by not trusting those people. And so then those people are more likely to abandon them. So that can be a sad struggle for sixes with some of their relationships is, is kind of, you know, having issues trusting themselves, having issues trusting other people. So sixes can really thrive when they develop practices that help quiet their mind and allow their own inner guidance and wisdom to shine through. Sixes at their best are caring, responsible, loyal, witty, team players, courageous. And at their worst, they can be anxious, suspicious, self-doubting, defensive, and controlling. What stresses them out? When some of their worst case scenario fears come true, which obviously that happens, <laughs> that can make them even more worried about the future and determined to plan and start to imagine and prepare for what could go wrong. So to move towards peace and growth, sixes need to mentally generate best case scenarios and take some time to really acknowledge the positive things that they do have. So it's helpful for sixes to take time at the end of the day to consciously write down you know, what went right about the day and what are the sources of support that they have in their lives? Because again, they're focused on what they don't have in terms of support and guidance. And they actually have a lot, both internally and externally, usually. So helping to balance their tendency to not look at those pieces of reality, right, will help them kind of find a little bit more groundedness in themselves and be able to move forward with some more confidence. Yeah. One of my very dear friends is a six. And I think that she's one of the most caring and loyal people that I know. And I feel like once you're in her inner circle, like you're there for life, she will always show up for you. And in a way that feels like, like she really kind of sees you and has observed like what you need. Yeah. I really value that about her, that she's like a ride or die friend. Mm -hmm. Moving on to the super fun and amazing type sevens <laughs> or Epicure. Jilly's wonderful type. So seven's desire is to be happy and they are here to teach us about joy and freedom. And seven's main motivation in life then is to find happiness, to find joy, 
find that freedom and to avoid pain. So like fives and sixes, they, they also feel sort of an underlying anxiety and fear about the world, but their response is to escape those negative feelings through planning fun activities and finding ways to kind of contribute to the world, kind of going out and doing a lot of amazing things. <laughs> Sevens are optimistic adventure seekers, and they want to feel good through new and different experiences. They often focus on planning these new experiences, which keeps their negative emotions kind of pressed down inside of them and gives them an exhilarating rush. They hate boredom and they're frustrated by people in situations that make them bored. Yep. Uh, <laughs> the worst. For the seven. worst. Since obviously if, if you're bored, some of those negative feelings might be able to bubble up towards the surface. And What's that? Hard to get away from those. Sevens can pick up skills and new ideas very easily, but then they often can struggle to decide what to do with themselves. They can take on multiple projects at the same time. They can have multiple careers in very different areas. I have another friend who was a seven who was, you know, worked in tech, then was a screenwriter, then a teacher, then a community organizer. <laughs> um, so sevens are, you know, looking for the next thing oftentimes and can, can adapt. Sevens minds move really rapidly, which makes them great at brainstorming and synthesizing ideas and information. They can be very creative and insightful, and they often bring a sense of humor and sort of positive energy when they work with other people. They're great at starting things, but they may struggle to see them through before they lose interest and get really excited about their next idea. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Generally want them on the startup side of things. For sure. <laughs> Finishers, we are not. Not the sustainers, yeah. <laughs> sustaining side, not so much. Sevens are incredibly fun as long as you go along with their agenda. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like my, my little Avery. <laughs> exactly. Yep. They're all smiles until you say no to their agenda. Mm -hmm. And then, oh, buckle up. <laughs> Different side. <laughs> Different side. Where does that fun, loving, friendly, warm person go? It's, I, I really all the sass. To, so all much the sass, sass. All the rigidity. Suddenly <laughs> they go from like, oh, I'm easygoing. I'm very rigid now. You will not go against me and my agenda. They can really be sort of harsh and hostile, um, <laughs> which is definitely the opposite of their normal fun loving spirit, because they, again, are really sort of driven to like continue towards that fun or activity agenda, whatever it is, because that, that is sort of essential for them to like avoid these other things they want to avoid on a deeper level. Sevens worry that they will never really be satisfied and find what they want in life. And so they're instead trying to try everything. And they can get in their own way by, again, focusing so much on the next thing that they often miss out on fully enjoying whatever they're doing in the present moment. I've heard a lot of sevens whose partners complain that while they're on a vacation, the seven is already planning the next vacation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that could happen. That <laughs> have enjoyed that vacation with them right in that moment. Seven's enthusiasm for who and what they love can really bring them back to the present moment. And they can discover that each moment actually can hold the joy and the freedom that they're seeking. But that does require being present in it and showing up also for some of the pain and the negative emotions that they've been hoping to avoid, but are necessary for being able to embrace it all and have it be real. Sevens at their best are spontaneous, fun-loving, imaginative, productive, confident, and charming. And at their worst, they can be impulsive, unfocused, restless, scattered, narcissistic, and self-destructive. So sevens can get in trouble with the old school word of gluttony, <laughs> right? Where they're trying to just do too much, eat too much, have too many experiences, right? Mm -hmm. 
I have serious FOMO. Sevens are, are definitely like the, sure. the, the worst FOMO sufferers <laughs> on the Enneagram. Um, so they can overcompensate by doing all these things to excess. And that, again, that obviously can cause a lot of problems on a lot of levels, mm-hmm. um, but it's missing out on just really fully being in the moment and being able to appreciate what's there. So what stresses them out? Again, sevens don't want to feel bored or trapped and unable to pursue the next fun thing on their agenda. And moving towards peace and growth for sevens, one approach is to do practices to cultivate really savoring the present moment and being aware that they need to make space intentionally to feel all of their emotions, even their sadness and even their pain. And that by denying those negative emotions, they're preventing themselves again from experiencing a deeper and more satisfying contact with reality, creating space for themselves to go to therapy, talk with a friend, whatever it is, be able to experience the full range of emotions that they're normally avoiding will help them to sort of be able to be more present and really show up and enjoy their life. Yeah, that um, rings very, very true. (laughs) The upsides and the downsides. My husband, Brian, and I are both sevens. And so at best, it's very fun. Lots of, you know, enthusiasm, lots of what's the next thing. We're curious and optimistic. We often say one lifetime isn't enough for all the things that we want to do, places we want to go. And that can be very fun, but also the dislike of boredom and the discomfort with complicated emotions can be tough because these things are real. (laughs) You sometimes are going to be bored and sometimes you're sad or you're angry. And so I can often push that all down until it explodes in some not great way because I just haven't dealt with it. So learning how to kind of sit with all of those feelings and learning how to process them in a healthy way is something that I deal with as a, a seven. I have a lot of sevens in my life, uh, <laughs> Jill and my daughter, Avery, at least our college roommate, Charlotte, and then my co-founder at the, our, my former youth program, Spark, Chris. And so I appreciate so many things about sevens, always something new to explore, very curious, enthusiastic. Like Chris used to rub his hands together to like, let's dive in. Yay. <laughs> I used to about it. And then uh, Avery, when I suggest something like, oh, do you want to read your new books? Let's do it. <laughs> She's like, come on. She's always like, let's go, let's go, everybody, let's go. And she's always staging parties in her dollhouse and so on. So she really brings a lot of delight and joy and silliness to the house. And and then when it's time to clean up, then I get the uh, there's like sassiness and resistance. She loves pulling things out and playing with them and then not putting them back. So yeah, anything unpleasant like brushing your teeth, putting on your shoes, all of it is a lot of resistance and sass. She had this little cup of milk and set it on the arm of the couch instead of bringing it to the kitchen. I said, Avery, please bring your cup to the kitchen. And she didn't. Avery, please listen right now. She's like, can you go one day without screaming in my face? And she's like (laughs) across the room. Darren can confirm. I did not scream. I was not in her face. (laughs) Very dramatic. Just a little dramatic. Yes. Oh my gosh. But in Jill, I appreciate so many seven things. We've had so many fun experiences that you've planned, Jill, you know, getting excited about when we visited you in Hawaii, for example, or when we go to California together, visiting you when you lived in Italy, just planning all these wonderful itineraries for us and for your other friends, loved ones who visit just the best food, the most beautiful places to go. You just know all of them and want to show people a good time. And so you put a lot of thought into that and a lot of logistics and just are super talented at that and making sure everyone is having a good time if we're all getting together and just feeling like bubbly and 
the best of the human emotions <laughs> that we want to feel. So I always appreciate that about you. And I think you've grown a lot in, in learning how to hold other emotions and feeling at all. Not that you desire to feel them, but you know, they are real, <laughs> I guess, in, in the guest house of being human, <laughs> I'll allow yes. it. I'll allow it. All. And then please love. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I just love the fun, loving spirit and humor of sevens. Just so many good laughs with all the sevens in my life and so many good stories mm. <laughs> and, and then so many good parties yes. <laughs> um, and, and just really the generosity of, of sevens too, just mm -hmm. in terms of like so many of the sevens I know who are, yeah, really give you the shirt off their back, really love their people and are trying to make a difference in the world. And when sevens commit to something, they can be amazing at it and they can really just grow something incredible, whatever that is. And it's, it's beautiful to see. Yeah. You have so many wonderful loved ones. And I love that you guys have built such a great supportive network and you've had so many people stay with you. Like, like, oh, a, I love it. you know, just the revolving door sometimes of guests because mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you do have so many great people in all corners of the world now, since you've moved a bunch of places. I know. And so wonderful. Like when they come to us, it's such a joy to plan those things and those outings and make sure that we get to eat all the good food and see all the pretty things. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> all that the world has to offer. All of it. <laughs> and moving to type eight. So type eight is the challenger or the leader. And the core desire of the eight is to protect themselves. And they're here to teach us about aliveness and strength. And eight's major motivation is to feel strong and avoid feeling weak and dependent. They like things to be intense so they can also connect to a sense of aliveness that they're craving. They're self-confident, decisive, and they tend to get their needs met by asking for them and making them happen. <laughs> Eights get energy from conflict and debate. They enjoy challenges. If you, if you don't want an eight to do something, don't challenge them about it because they'll do it. <laughs> they will show you they can do it. Um, and they love challenging others. Eights are really comfortable with anger. It's often their default response in situations. So that can be kind of a challenge that they have to work with. They're very power oriented. Their superpower is kind of reading power in a room and mm. quickly assessing who has it, who doesn't, <laughs> who the most powerful person is. They expect everyone else to do that, which I've had to point out to some eights that I know, like other people just don't read the, read the room that way. Mm. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, <laughs> they don't read the power in the room. Uh, so they can be very good leaders and get people to follow them. And they will step up and lead if they sense that they are the most powerful person in the room. Even mm. if they don't really know what the topic is to lead on, they will, <laughs> they will fake it till they make it. They will step up and lead, which is obviously an important gift in many ways, um, but can be a little alienating for people at times as well. And they really like being in charge. They like being their own bosses. When they're healthy, eights use their strength and power to fight for those more vulnerable than themselves. And they're very quick to notice injustice and they really want to fight to make things right. They're very justice oriented people. Once you have earned their trust and respect, they will defend you to the death once you kind of get into their inner circle, but they do not naturally trust people at first. You really have to earn their trust and their respect. They don't put up with BS. <laughs> they don't put up with flattery or, you know, niceties. Like they, they really want to know what you're really about. They're very direct and they appreciate people being direct. Once they decide that you're on their team, then they're going to fight really hard for you. Eights want to be independent and they have a big fear then of being controlled. They don't necessarily want to control you. They just want to make sure you are not controlling them. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And this can lead them to, to being defensive and kind of paranoid at times. And they can often use bullying behavior to get their way and to be able to stay in control. Eight's gonna get in their way when they believe that they have to struggle really with everything to make everything happen and that life is a constant battle. They can overdo things and use too much energy in their approach. So they can end up kind of rolling over people, right? <laughs> without knowing it or sometimes knowing it, usually without knowing it. I think for me as a two, taking everything personally, learning about eights on the Enneagram was super helpful because I definitely had had some tough interactions with eights where I'm just like, oh my gosh, they're just, you know, they're so insensitive and they're just doing their thing. And why are they doing this to me? And, and I think the Enneagram really helped me see, oh no, it, they're really doing it unconsciously. <laughs> they're just kind of going... <laughs> full steam ahead and I mm. happen to be in the way and <laughs> over. It's my fault for being in the way. That's right. They didn't mean to, but I was there and you know, they were going, the train had left the station. So they can often kind of run over people without meaning to, since they're not that concerned with what others think of them. And they have to develop sort of awareness of their impact on people and learn how to be less sort of forceful about kind of everything they do. Eights can rely on their own sense of knowing when they've gone too far. And so they can develop a sense of when they need to back off and kind of let things be. And when eights sort of discover that true strength actually comes from vulnerability and being connected to this really loving heart that they have, they can really be unstoppable loving people, kind of a big force for good in the world. Like Martin Luther King Jr. was probably an eight, for instance. And they can become sort of more open and approachable to those around them. Again, when they've connected with, with their hearts, they can be just really magnanimous. So eights at their best are confident, decisive, loyal, energetic, protective, direct, and magnanimous. At their worst, they can be willful, confrontational, domineering, insensitive, controlling, self-centered, and rebellious. What stresses them out is not being able to exert their power or control over a situation, no matter how hard they try. And so to move towards growth and, and peace for them, they have to recognize their own limits and how they often push themselves to exhaustion because they're just like, go, go, go. So they really need to learn to allow themselves time to rest and recharge and cultivate time to pay attention to their inner state as well, instead of just moving out and trying to you know, push everything forward in the world and that this will help give them a little bit more grace for, for themselves and others. Yes. My son, Evan is an eight and that sounds all accurate. It's so interesting. I think eights must be the hardest type to parent. <laughs> I, I, I put forth, especially I if you, if you are an Enneagram one, uh, because <laughs> I was wired with, can you do, follow the rules, do the right thing. And he was fired with, I'm going to do what I want to do. And that's the right thing. <laughs> and so we have some creative differences, but yeah, uh, it's interesting how early those things emerge because I remember when he was two and a half, even when he was playing with his action figures, he'd had this Ultron Marvel action figure that he would say, I'm controlling you. Ultron's controlling you. And so you'd play with him with your other figures and whatever you were trying to do, Ultron would control you. And so it was not very fun to play. <laughs> <laughs> and he's still developing and he has ADHD. So there's some, you know, even though he's an intellectually advanced emotional development uh, that's lagging, but I've seen all of those sides come out in him when we try to say like set limits on screens or whatever he's doing. He just throws up a big wall and is like, I want to do what I want to do. This is my weekend. And I've come to respect in a way that he knows his boundaries, he knows what he wants and he feels entitled to it in some way, you know, just as long as it doesn't hurt other people. Whereas I grew up not having that sense and not knowing exactly what I wanted, just like what I should do. And he had that from a young age, the sense of autonomy and the sense that he had the right to do things that made him happy. 
So of course, navigating that as a child is difficult and navigating that as a parent, he really does stand up for justice. That is something we have in common is that we really mm-hmm. see injustice and feel it like really deeply needing to do something about that. So for example, one of the program leaders at his after-school program told me that there was a kid who had proposed a game to the rest of the group and that no one wanted to play it. And so the kid was really sad or kind of having a little bit of a tantrum. And so Evan took him aside and was like, Hey, it's okay. Let's, we can play it together or just helped him calm down and gave him some mm-hmm. options and recognize that in him. And I love to hear that because he's so compassionate when he sees people hurting or sees people being bullied, he won't stand for it. Takes mm-hmm. care of his sister. He does really step up. Like when Darren was on his work trip, he took on some responsibilities and set a good example for Avery. So when called upon, he really does step up into that leadership role. And it's just so interesting how those different sides come out in the different circumstances. It also is like when it suits him, <laughs> like when he feels like <laughs> it's the right thing or that he wants to do it. That's the... <laughs> When he's invested, he he is unstoppable. Mm-hmm. Using that power for good. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like I'm often baffled by eights because we just operate in totally different ways. But I'm also a bit envious of that, that you have a very clear idea of what you want to do and how you want to do it. And that you're not really bothered by mm-hmm. what other people want you to do. <laughs> I think that can be a huge strength in terms of your boundaries and just going for the things in the way that you see fit. I feel like I struggle with that. And so I'm a little jealous of eight sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if Harry Potter was an eight, but I do think about the Slytherin and Gryffindor, like he could have chosen his path either oh, way. And he yeah. had both of those elements in him. And so, yeah, I'm always telling Evan to use his powers for good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm grateful for some of the eights in my life who I just feel like, yeah, they just totally have my back. And the eights I know from my organizing work, they've done so much to fight for justice and for people mm-hmm. who are struggling. And a couple of them have in mind. I mean, they're even though they're like retired-ish now, they're still doing the work. They're still mm-hmm. just this force for good. And they love people so fiercely you know, with mm-hmm. that same intensity, which is mm-hmm. just, it's wonderful <laughs> as a two. I love that. I'm like, oh, yes. I love that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> and last but not least the type nine, the peacemaker. So the desire of the type nine is to be at peace and they are here to teach us about unity and wholeness. So nines show up in the world and have this deep sense of really the oneness of all things. And they really want to stay connected to that feeling of oneness. This leads them to try hard to keep peace, both internally and externally in their lives, and to avoid conflict, because again, they want to avoid a sense of fracturing, this underlying wholeness that they feel that just is in the universe. They value as the sense of connection that they have with other people and the universe, and they want to know that everything's all right in the world, which in a non-dualistic way it is (laughs) (laughs) on some level. They're generally easygoing and calm and receptive people, often self-effacing, and they can show up in kind of one or two ways. If they're nines who are really in touch with their passions and their inner reserves and their strengths, they can really be very magnetic and inspiring, like lovely people, like this quiet force for good. But sometimes nines feel cut off from themselves and their passions and who they are And so they can show up in a way where they feel disengaged and remote, sort of like they're in the background and they have a sense that maybe their needs and their point of view doesn't really matter. So because of their ability to see the whole and see both sides of every issue, 
they often see themselves in all nine types of the Enneagram. They often have a hard time figuring out what their type is because they're like, I can relate to that one and that one and that one. <laughs> and they often don't have a strong sense of their identity on some level. So it's, it's helpful for them, obviously, to see different sides and perspectives and understand where people are coming from. And this can really help them bring opposing sides together, be very diplomatic, hold some of these paradoxes that, you know, eights are like, no, it's black and white, one or the other. And nines are much more like, well, you know, is it? It's all kind of gray. We can all kind of hold this together. Mm -hmm. However, that can make it difficult for them to actually make decisions and to persevere through conflict, which they tend to avoid. Nines get in their own way when they're too accommodating and they ignore their own desires or they deny parts of reality in order to avoid conflict. So nines are good at having selective blind spots about people or situations because they don't want to deal with them. So they can just say, well, no, no, I don't see that. I don't see that over there. Right. So I don't have to actually address it. Um, and other people can be like, wait, no, look over here, look over here. Um, but nines are actually the most stubborn of all the types on the Enneagram, quietly stubborn. Mm, more than an eight. Yes, hard to believe. Well, <laughs> so the great Enneagram wisdom teachers are, are saying. Um, so it's tough to get them to engage on the parts that they are not looking at. So they're kind of the masters at being in denial at times, and they're really good at resisting your efforts to like force them to look at it. <laughs> no, I will not look at it. So they basically just like eights and ones, they don't want to be messed with. They want to be in control of themselves. Autonomy is a big issue, but instead of an eight who will want to fight you on it, if you try to control them, the nine is more likely to smile and say yes, and then quietly go do whatever they were going to do anyway. <laughs> so they have a habit of saying yes, when they mean no, just to avoid conflict which obviously, unfortunately, creates more conflict down the line as right. people start to figure that out. <laughs> and then because nines are accommodating people very often, they often build up resentment and that this can make them moody and kind of passive aggressive. So again, they, they're not aware of it, but it can come off as under the surface, like anger at you <laughs> a little bit, you know, and little passive aggressive comments where they don't want to come out and have a big fight with you. Although they can occasionally, but they are feeling resentful about how much they've had to put up with. So nines can usually rely on the fact that they really value their relationships more than their peace of mind. So that will help challenge them to hang in there with that conflict and to make the tough decisions. And they can really thrive when they do step up and recognize that they're their opinions, their feelings, their needs really matter and their contribution matters and their presence matters. Nines really have this question inside if, if their presence really matters to people. And so the more that they can connect to some of their deeper passion and to their deeper needs and drives, then the more that they can show up, be present, and the more that they can get affirmed that yes, they do matter. An interesting part of the nine is that they have an inner critic that actually tells them to retreat even from the things that they really are passionate about because their inner critic is trying to keep them in this state of equilibrium. And if you want to stay in this peaceful, harmonious inner place, you don't necessarily want to get really high or get really low. So their inner critic is actually telling them to not go after some of the things they really care about, because that might upset this equilibrium, right? Great joy might also throw you off. So mm -hmm. they have to learn to override that voice that's telling them to disengage and retreat and just go to this quiet interior garden in their head and actually stay connected to the things that they really do care about and keep pushing themselves out into the world to engage with those things and people and really show up. Their defense strategy can be that disengagement where they're smiling, they're nodding, but they're not really there anymore. 
<laughs> so nines at their best are peaceful, generous, open-minded, empathetic, patient, receptive, and understanding. And at their worst, they can be disengaged, forgetful, indecisive, judgmental, stubborn, and passive aggressive. So what stresses them out, obviously, big one is conflict <laughs> and having to make decisions that are going to disappoint people and create sort of this loss of connection that they fear. And so to move towards growth, they need to practice saying no more when they actually mean no. And they have to sort of be able to be willing to put themselves in some uncomfortable situations, right? They have to build up their tolerance for going through the conflict, going through the discomfort. Again, nines really like to be comfortable. They want to avoid discomfort. <laughs> at all costs. So the more they can look at that part of themselves and help themselves just be present in those moments and stick with those feelings, the more they can build up their own reserves to be able to handle those situations. And, and obviously realize that down the line, avoiding conflict now usually creates more conflict later. So the more you can build up your capacity to deal with it now, you're going to be able to have actually less over time. <laughs> Yeah, I have known or worked with uh, three different therapists who are nines. And oh, I think because of their training and their emotional development, they're able to recognize the strengths in all different types of people they see and listen with an open mind and be empathetic and calm and patient. Like you feel their presence. I think they're able to access that part of themselves because from what I understand, the nine kind of has a sense of all the different types. Like they're able to step into those a little bit more than others, other yeah. types. And so I think that allows them to empathize with all different types of people and struggle. So that's been really helpful. I felt really seen and taken care of and understood by all of them. Some working in a family context, some working one-on-one. -on -one. Oh, wow. That was really <laughs> comprehensive. Thank you. Alicia. I understand <laughs> yes. the types. Like I felt like I had pretty, pretty good understanding before, but even more now of the motivations and how each type gets in their own way and how they can resolve that. So if listeners want to figure out their own type or just want to read more about the Enneagram, what resources would you recommend to get started? There are a lot of really great teachers right now. So it's wonderful to have a lot of good resources. My favorite books are by Russ Hudson and Don Rizzo. The Wisdom of the Enneagram is my best recommendation for kind of the comprehensive Bible on all things Enneagram. <laughs> but there's also amazing teachers like Suzanne Stabile and Beatrice Chestnut who have podcasts and also books that are really accessible and easy to read. Helen Palmer is also one of the sort of foundational teachers of the Enneagram who has a lot of wonderful workshops and books to read. So there's definitely a lot of good things out there. You can sign up for a free Enya thought of the day. If you just Google that, and then you can type in two different types that you'll get to your email each day. I thought about each one. So I have one for me and one for Darren that comes to my email every morning, which is helpful. We'll also link in the show notes to a project by Ryan O'Neill uh, with N-E-A-L. He has the Sleeping at Last podcast and he yes. had a yes. project where he wrote a yes. song with, that traced the journey from just like disintegration to integration or, you know, from stress to health for each of the types. And they're so beautiful. Like each they one makes are. me cry because yes. like in mine and the people I love, it just makes me feel like he really sees them and he has mm -hmm. people he knows who are of the, that type contribute music or sounds or something to that song and it feels just so authentic and wonderful so yes highly recommend that i yes. love it i listen to the two song and cry every time oh yeah i definitely <laughs> cried listening to seven one, one. <laughs> felt very seen oh Beautiful. gosh i love it yes it's so so good so alicia what is coming up for the enneagram workshops and coaching you do and where can people find you 
Yes, so I'm very excited to be launching some workshops this summer, and I will be offering an introduction to the Enneagram, which will be much more in depth than this podcast <laughs> for folks who are still trying to learn their type or really want to learn more about kind of the whole system. And then for folks who are somewhat familiar with the Enneagram, I'm holding a workshop called the Enneagram and Art as Meditation, a creative exploration of your type's growth path. Mm-hmm. And this workshop will allow us uh, to go deeper together to really explore some of the unique suffering and challenges of your type, as well as some of the growth path potential that you have. So we're going to be using art and drawing. You don't have to be an artist to see what bubbles up, but to go deeper with how we can heal some of our wounds and find some more freedom from our compulsive patterns. And then I'm also going to hold a workshop on the instinctual drives and the Enneagram subtypes. And this is a whole nother layer of the Enneagram that we didn't have time to touch on today, but it's also very helpful to learn which of the three instinctual drives that people have is dominant for you and flavors how your type shows up. So this is really helpful to understand because it really explains why, you know, myself as a two, I might meet another two and we come off in a rather different way. And that's probably because the instinctual drive that's dominant in each of us is different. So it's really helpful to understand what those drives mean. And there are a lot of practical tools to cultivate some of the other drives that you may have been repressing and kind of bring yourself back into balance. And that actually helps resolve some of the other personality struggles that you might have. So I'll also be offering coaching if you want to go deeper and work with someone who you know understands the Enneagram system and, and can give you practices and thoughts about how to continue to work with some of the, the pieces of your type that are really challenging you right now in your life. And then also typing sessions. If you really feel like I'm really struggling with what my type is or between two types, we can spend a little bit of time digging in together to what type you might be. I'm also able to do custom workshops for organizations and groups. So if your organization is looking for some kind of professional development, staff development for the team or team retreat, and you think this might be helpful for building up your leadership skills and your ability for the team to communicate, I'm happy to to do Enneagram workshops for that purpose as well. And all of that can be found on my website, enneagramgrowthpath.com. That all sounds amazing. No, sign me up. Yes, for reals. <laughs> yeah, I could attest to how helpful it is in my own relationship and my friendships with loved ones and within my family to know their types, their tendencies, and in combination with my own. So co-sign that that would be helpful for an organization. <laughs> 100%. You can also read more about your type on the on enneagraminstitute.com. And it'll give you examples of celebrities that have your type and pairings with different types, you know, which types make good mates and all of that. Well, that is all for this episode of Semi Together. Alicia, thank you so much for joining us and giving us your time and wisdom. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. It's been amazing. Thank you so much for having me. I just love sharing this amazing system with folks and always wonderful to spend time with the two of you could, could keep talking about this topic all day as you know. <laughs> I know I know I want more <laughs> seriously well listeners what's your Enneagram type what do you like and dislike about your type tell us at podcast at semitogether.com or send us a voice memo and if you're an adult with ADHD I'd love to explore how ADHD overlaps with your Enneagram type and how you can use your Enneagram type as an adhd in ways that serve you. You can book a free discovery call at risingspiralcoaching.com. And if you haven't already, please take a moment to subscribe and leave us a review. Thanks for listening to Semi Together.
and take it from us, you have it more together than you think you do. I feel like I have a future for the record that I want to uh, amend before we go further. If I can go back, like I was not prepared to talk about ones yet. And so I feel like I did not fully express my, my love for ones. If I could just add a little bit that I will edit in later. <laughs> Uh, okay. You hate me, don't you, Joe? I do. <laughs> That's what I was trying to say. <laughs> okay. You just been trying uh, to be diplomatic. <laughs> <laughs> Ones are the worst. That's what I was saying. Your inner critic was right. Um, <laughs> so let me do that real quick and then we can jump back in. 